It's the kind of story that keeps moviegoers on the edge of their seats. A lethal pandemic quickly spreads through a crowded city as the medical community races to stop it. But throughout history, health officials right here in New York City have had their own real-life drama dealing with disease, including bouts with smallpox. Today, there are vaccines available to protect adults and children against at least 17 diseases. But health officials sometimes struggle to convince people that vaccines are safe. A new exhibit set to open Tuesday at the New York Historical Society explores the history of vaccination, including the conflict between the need to manage disease in an urban environment and the rights of individuals to resist government interference in their private lives. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Joining me this morning is the exhibition's team, as well as an immunization expert from the New York City Health Department. I want to first introduce curator Dr. Jean Ashton. Jean's the executive vice president and director of the New York Historical Society Library Division. Jean, good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Dr. David Rosner. He is the co-director of the Center for the History and Ethics of Public Health at Columbia University. Dr. Rosner, thanks so much for coming in. Nice to be here. And Dr. James Calgrove. He's the associate professor of public health at Columbia. Hello. Good morning. And with us on the phone this morning is Dr. Jane Zucker. Dr. Zucker is New York City's Assistant Commissioner of the Bureau of Immunization. Dr. Zucker, good morning. Yeah, good morning. The exhibit opening at the New York Historical Society Tuesday is titled Be Sure, Be Safe, Get Vaccinated, Smallpox, Vaccination, and Civil Liberties in New York. Jean, let's start with you. What prompted this exhibit at this point in time? Well, it was a confluence of several different ideas that arose at the same time. Uh, one was the political campaigns uh, of starting early last year, mentioning vaccination as being a major issue of civil liberties, um, the right of people to refuse to be vaccinated. And uh, then the, this issue has come up again and again in other diseases other, this, other than smallpox. And we realize that by looking at smallpox, historically, a disease that has by and large disappeared, we could do the sort of a capsule history of both the resistance to public health initiatives and their success. A lot has changed since smallpox, huh, Dr. Zucker? Absolutely. We have many more vaccines available and many more uh, diseases that have uh, we've been able to reduce the incidence by over 99%. What today are the top recommended vaccines for New York City residents? Right. So we have several different vaccines uh, that are different by age group. So, for example, for children, there are 14 different diseases that we routinely vaccinate against. And those include diseases such as measles, uh, rubella, also against pertussis. For adolescents, we focus on vaccination against meningitis, also pertussis as well as human papillomavirus. And for adults, our big focus is influenza vaccine, but we also are concerned about uh, adults who have high-risk conditions who would benefit from other vaccines such as the pneumococcal vaccine, hepatitis A or hepatitis B vaccines. Are any vaccinations required? There are vaccines that are required for children to attend daycare. There are also requirements for school attendance, as well as vaccines that are required for people to attend college. Jean, how far back does this exhibit take us in the history of immunizations? Well, we start in 1690 when the first smallpox was recorded in the city council minutes probably occurred in New York and New Amsterdam long before that, but this was the first official notice. And then 
the first inoculations uh, appeared in the 1720s. So, Dr. Calgrove, what was your involvement with this exhibit? Um, we, uh, my colleagues and I met uh, with Jean, uh, I guess it was over a year ago, mm -hmm. in, in planning the exhibit. Um, several uh, members of our faculty have worked on the history of infectious diseases and the history of immunization. Um, so we had uh, great discussions about what aspects of the history were most uh, important to present. It's a, it's a long and very fascinating history, and there are many uh, directions, I think, that, that, uh, that this exhibit touches on. Dr. Rosner, what has this project meant to you? Well, it's just a kind of affirmation of the importance of history for the general public and also for um, historians to feel that they can really offer something to the general public. Uh, you know, there's a tremendous controversy, of course, that continues about the right of the individual to, vac to refuse vaccination. There's all sorts of issues of civil liberties that crop up. And these are not, in some sense, new issues. They're issues that have kind of continually come up in the history of vaccination. And yet vaccination itself, as James knows because of his uh, extraordinary book, uh, vaccination is probably one of the great technological innovations of all time that's probably transformed the health of uh, not only the United States but also other nations throughout the world. So this is a, a great moment in which to look at vaccination. Dr. Calgrove, Dr. Rosner dropped the word of your book, so tell us about your book. Um, the book is State of Immunity, and it really looks at the ways that health officials have tried to achieve high levels of vaccine usage over the past two centuries. Um, as David said, vaccines have been extremely beneficial, but they've also um, raised interesting uh, scientific and political issues um, in terms of the limits of government authority to compel people to take steps to protect their health, um, whether they want to or not. Um, sort of myths uh, about vaccine safety have surrounded vaccines for as long as vaccines have been around. And so uh, often people have um, been suspicious or wary of the recommendations of health officials, um, even when uh, there was no evidence to support their, their beliefs. Dr. Zucker, what are the primary reasons behind why people today dismiss the idea of vaccinations for themselves or their children? Right, well, one of the most common reasons we hear is that people don't fear these diseases anymore. So in the past, there would be millions of cases of measles every year in, in the country, and now people rarely see a case of measles. So uh, they don't perceive a risk. They don't see that the disease can be severe, and so they don't want to be vaccinated or have their children vaccinated. I think, as was mentioned, the concern about safety often, often comes up, and there are a lot of myths around whether a vaccine is safe or not. Um, we hear this a lot with influenza vaccine, for example, whether or not people will get the flu from the vaccine, which is not true, but it is a concern we hear commonly. And we also hear that it's better to get the disease. And I think that may be common with the varicella or chickenpox vaccine. And people don't realize that, in fact, 100 people died every year from chickenpox. And again, that could have been prevented. And that's not counting the hospitalizations that would occur with varicella. So I would say that those are the three top reasons. There was a study published in the British Medical Journal, The Lancet, back in 1998, mm -hmm. which was later debunked that tied autism to certain vaccinations, including a vaccine for measles. Now, is that something that you're still fighting against? Uh, we absolutely still hear about that. And I would say that the consequences of that 
publication have really been uh, far-reaching. We have large outbreaks in other parts of the world. Um, last year, we've had a record number of measles cases in the U.S. We had 25 cases here in, in New York City. And so a lot of it actually stems back to this particular paper. And what we hear is that people or, or parents are hesitant to get their children vaccinated. They sort of want to get through the period when um, autism is often diagnosed. So instead of us being able to get children vaccinated on time with measles vaccine at one year of age, we sort of see that parents are sort of preferentially sort of moving to three, four, five years of age and getting their child vaccinated before school entry. Um, again, to make sure that their child isn't autistic or there aren't any problems before they're actually vaccinated. And that's been a huge uh, problem for us. Dr. Calgrove, you want to add on to that? Well, I, I think one of the things that this exhibit at the New York Historical Society does so well is that it really shows that theories like the autism theory are not new, and these kinds of um, myths and unproven theories have surrounded vaccines for over two centuries. The Internet obviously has dramatically increased the speed at which these theories can spread, um, but the idea that there are these unfounded claims about the dangers of vaccines have been with us uh, for a very long time. That being said, Dr. Rosner, how important are public awareness campaigns when it comes to promoting vaccination? Well, they're absolutely critical since most of our uh, public health activities depend upon the goodwill of the public and the trust of the public. Unless the public really understands the, the importance of vaccination, the importance of public health activities in general, you're not going to have good compliance, which means essentially you're always going to be in danger of creating um, – a reservoir of disease, a disease, you know, a group of people who refuse to take something or distrust the public health community. Um, you know, given the political climate today, there's tr so much, so much distrust of government uh, that that often overflows into a distrust of what public health people do. Dr. Zucker, what do you do there at the health department to help dispel some of these myths about vaccinations? So we have developed a lot of materials that are geared for, for public education. And I'll just say that we're about to uh, launch a health bulletin that actually addresses these concerns about, about childhood vaccination. Um, so we go directly to the public. We had, uh, for influenza, for example, this past year, we've had TV, radio ads, all the print material, press releases. Uh, we work very closely with partners. Often it's better to have people from the community, for example, to actually give the message of the importance of vaccination. Uh, we work very closely with providers. I think that we know a provider's recommendation for vaccination is critical for um, a parent or a person to accept vaccination. I think those tend to be trusted sources. We have web materials. We also will have uh, ways to sort of increase access to vaccination. So we have a locator for influenza to make it easy for people to find places to get vaccinated. I think access is often a problem as well. Um, and I think that provider piece, again, is important because we do work with providers to for them to know how well they're vaccinating their patient population so they can make improvements. I read an article recently about a study that was done about text messaging parents about getting their kids immunized. Has anyone seen that at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. No. Yes. Yeah. It came out of it came out of uh, Columbia. And uh, yeah, the, the faculty who worked on that have been doing some really creative and, and innovative things. I mean, I think technology um, has the potential to to dramatically change the way we, we look at vaccination delivery. 
Gene, take us back to 1947, if you will, when New York City led a successful campaign to stave off a potential smallpox epidemic. Well, this is one of the remarkable stories. We have a number of stories in the exhibition, but this is probably the most remarkable one. Um, a man from Mexico who had been traveling in Mexico came to New York City in, in 1947, wandered around a little bit, then had himself admitted to Bellevue Hospital where they determined that he had smallpox. The, um, he, he, the commissioner of public health and the mayor noticed, were aware that this might be a, a crisis. They tried to trace his steps. They sent scientists out to try and trace and vaccinate people who had, might, he might have encountered. But they basically went on the air, uh, the radio, and used the press to urge people to be sure, be safe, get vaccinated, which is the title of our show. And within two weeks, five million New Yorkers were voluntarily vaccinated. An absolutely incredible number of people in, in doing something that simply couldn't happen today. How did they execute that five million New Yorkers got vaccinated in such a short period of time? Well, part of it came out of a, a, a very specific historical moment, a moment after World War II, after the Depression, after the New Deal, when... New Yorkers in particular had tremendous trust in government and really believed what professionals could say and would say and thought that there was no reason for anyone to do any harm to them. Uh, so you saw a kind of very different political environment in which smallpox and getting in line and circling a block and waiting for your inoculation was seen as kind of a patriotic act, an act of um, civic duty, and not only for themselves or for their children or their families, or their immediate neighbors, but for the community at large. And this was part of, you know, uh, kind of a new a New Deal ethic, the last remnants of it, a, a patriotism that was born of World War II and an obligation to participate in civic actions. And so it was kind of a very different political environment, social environment, that led to people saying, of course, this is not a question, public health and the government's working for us. And let's stress, this was purely voluntary. It was purely voluntary, and uh, that was really what was remarkable about the whole thing. Churches and synagogues and community centers and schools were uh, had stashes of vaccine. And uh, my understanding is that the mayor got together the uh, pharmaceutical companies and twisted their arms a little bit and urged them to pool their vaccines so there would be enough to go around, which they did. I understand that little was said about the potential side effects of the smallpox vaccine, though, in 1947. Is that correct? Well, one thing to, to keep in mind is that the smallpox vaccine, compared to vaccines we have today, was actually a relatively crude vaccine. It had uh, first been formulated in at the uh, end of the, of the 18th century and had changed relatively little um, by 1947. So there were uh, a, there was a higher incidence of side effects, but uh, the threat of smallpox uh, far outweighed the risk of adverse events. Uh, smallpox, as as you know, is an extremely gruesome disease with a very high fatality rate, and so health officials, I think, quite appropriately emphasized the risk of the disease itself rather than uh, the risks of the vaccine. What I read was at the time the health commissioner just told New York that 
the side effect was you might have some soreness in your arm and then just use an ice pack and you'll well, be okay. And people knew that. I mean, the, the, the side effects were well known that people were accustomed to having very sore arms, much sorer arms than people get today from a hypodermic injection. I would, I would add that in the exhibition, we have three snippets of, of uh, Israel Weinstein, the health commissioner's broadcast, radio broadcast to the public that you can listen to. Uh, where he is telling people that you know he'd been vaccinated many times, but was doing going to get it vaccinated again, and urging them to do it. Dr. Rosner, if this were today, do you think that we would be questioning more the side effects of a vaccine like this? Um, well, obviously we do. Uh, obviously, at least uh, the general public does. And uh, again, this is due to a number of factors. One is just the pure epidemiological reality that we don't feel threatened in quite the same way from infectious disease, which is uh, an extraordinary victory of, pu of public health, but in, in some sense has undermined its own, its own function and now that we are not facing death and disease and destruction every, every minute from a whole series of infections. Uh, we have a false sense of calm about it, not realizing how constant and how vigilant the culture has to be about disease. So that's part of it. The other part of it is really just a kind of a, a, the constant drumbeat, and I don't want to keep drumbeating this issue, but the constant drumbeat of distrust, uh, distrust of government, distrust of professionals, distrust of elites that permeates our political environment and which comes out in all sorts of bizarre little ways in terms of how we try to work as a community to protect one another. And we don't have that kind of common common bond that we once did. Did anyone die from the vaccine in 1947? Were there deaths just from getting immunized? Um, there were three fatalities that were thought to be linked to the vaccine, one from an elderly man whose uh, vaccination site had become infected, and then two from infants who developed severe complications from the vaccine. Um, there was uh, speculation that the vaccine might be associated with heart attack deaths, but uh, that was never proven. And in fact, a study a few years ago suggested that that was, was not the case. The last naturally occurring case of smallpox was, what, 1977, something like that, right? Yes, that's right. Yes. 78, yeah. Smallpox, though, does still exist in vials somewhere. Right. In, uh, in the war chests of, of the old Soviet Union and the United States, we still have this material waiting to break out somehow. It is the only <laughs> contagious disease that is a credible biological warfare threat for which a reasonable, effective vaccine exists. Is the city prepared today, Dr. Zucker, should an outbreak of smallpox hit us? What I would say is that the health department has has plans and mass vaccination campaign. It is part of our emergency preparedness activities that we that we do. I would I would say the concern about smallpox itself, I think, would be vaccine supply concerns. You know, and that's something that um, I you know I can't speak to in terms of what the sort of the number of vaccine doses that are that are actually available within the within the US there was an attempt to small uh, to inoculate uh, about 500,000 people um, right after 9/11 I don't know there anyone remembers this campaign but Dick Cheney was very active in trying to promote the idea that we should have 500,000 responders interestingly enough virtually I think the total number of responders that ultimately were vaccinated, numbered in the tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands. And that was largely in part because of a sense that, one, this was one, quote, overkill, 
uh, and that people were really terrified of the vaccine. And also some institutions around the country did not want to become known as centers for uh, smallpox uh, smallpox control. Um, Vanderbilt Hospital or other hospitals around the country did not want to be known as places where you would bring a smallpox victim if there were an outbreak, which meant they knowingly went and unprepared themselves. So it's an interesting history in which this tension between what we tell people and our trust of what what is being told to us is really critical. Was there ever a point in history, Gene, where the city did mandate vaccinations for its entire population that you know of? Well, in the in the 18th century, inoculation, which was a precursor to vaccination, which entailed uh, people rubbing matter from smallpox into open sores uh, and was much less safe than vaccination, there are periods of time when it was forbidden because it spread the disease, and there were other periods of time when they recommended it to everything. One of the things in the exhibition that we're proud of having is uh, uh, borrowed from the Mount Vernon Association, a letter, George, Wa- an order from George Washington to inoculate his troops, who reportedly he was losing more men to smallpox than to conventional weapons, and he took the unprecedented step of vaccinating all of his troops. Um, And then uh, there were periods in time when mass vaccination was certainly recommended, and the late 19th century saw an awful lot of sanitary inspectors um, forcibly, in some cases, uh, vaccinating people. I believe in 1901 in New York City that was the case related to smallpox, right? Wasn't there a smallpox raid in tenement buildings in lower Manhattan? Well, the smallpox raids have been going on since the 1870s or 80s or 90s, and uh, people, especially people who didn't speak English, uh, would see inspectors come into their house and pull out people with smallpox. They would hide their babies in dresser drawers and their sick people in closets, uh, or they were terrified of the vaccination or of quarantine, any of these ways. And, And so it was a strong political issue, and people resisted it. How much of a challenge, Dr. Zucker, is the city's diverse population when it comes to increasing immunization levels? Because you do have people from so many different walks of life and with so many different beliefs. Well, I think that is part of uh, the challenge for our public messaging. And what we do is really try to reach uh, many different communities, and we would have different approaches for the communities. We do see uh, persistent, for example, racial disparities, neighborhood differences in uptake of influenza vaccine, as an example. And so I, I think that um, what it what it does for us is really we need sort of multi-pronged different approaches to uh, provide that immunization message out to the public. Gene, in the exhibit, are there any features that help us to really understand what the government did to help gain, earn public trust? Well, it wasn't so much the government, but in, in general, in 1800, 1801, when vaccination was first introduced, the Edward Jenner vaccination, we have a, a broadside in the show that was distributed to clergymen that was, they urged them to give it to parents at the point when their children were being vaccinated, urging them to have their children vaccinated. There had been some complaints that to stop a disease was against the will of God, that God ordained disease. But this was the established church saying, please get your child vaccinated. And it was over 200 years ago. So trust, public trust was being developed in many ways. Do you also look at pop culture at all and how pop culture has viewed immunizations and 
these kinds of fears of disease? Oh, yes. We have a wonderful movie from 1950 called The Killer That Stalked New York that was essentially an expurgated, cleaned up version of the smallpox epidemic. But we have television shows. We have comic books. We have things uh, starting with Poe's Mask of the Red Death, which may or may not have been about smallpox. It was just about disease in general. But was it, it's it's part of this whole idea of the gothic imagination and uh, the fear of disease. Did you guys see the movie? I've seen it. It's wonderful. It's a <laughs> it's a great film noir. It's a, really an, an edge of your seat thriller. <laughs> I unfortunately have missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> does Netflix carry it? It I don't does. Know. It that's, does. That's yeah. where I that's where I saw it. Yeah. There is a hospital or the remnants of a hospital on Roosevelt Island. It was a smallpox hospital, right? Do you tell that story? Well, a little bit about it. Nobody wanted to have a smallpox hospital or an infectious disease hospital in their community. I mean, for understandable reasons. One was built on Staten Island that was burned down by uh, citizens in the 1850s. And there were hospitals built on Randall's Island and on North Brother Island. And then there were sort of some specially constructed islands, Swinburne Island and Hoffman Island, for people suffering from contagious diseases. And... um, they were not pleasant places. They were known as pest houses, and they were always the object of great terror and fear in the community. There was very little that physicians could do uh, for most contagious diseases in the 19th century and, and almost nothing that could be done for smallpox. And so people rightly believed that if they saw a loved one go into the pest house, they would never see that loved one again, that they were basically places that people would go to die. You know, one of the things that really I think the public should understand is that when public health acted in the past, it often acted with the heavy hand of the police. Um, and uh, unlike today, where we complain about you know public health trying to stop us from smoking wherever we want, or you know trying to stop us from you know smoking in parks, all those kind of strange and voluntaristic activities that we the you know public health department really engages in. That is minor, minor intrusions into personal liberties uh, when compared with what public health would do in the mm-hmm. 1880s through 1900s when they literally would take people from their homes and put them in isolation if they felt it was necessary. So and I just want to you know, kind of like give the general audience of the public an understanding of how sensitive public health has become to their feelings and to their personal liberties. Um, and uh, a lot of the hype about its intrusiveness is really misdirected. You mentioned the tenement raids earlier. When the health department sent squads of vaccinators into the community, they went with police accompaniment, even though there was no law on the books technically requiring people to get vaccinated. Obviously, uh, when communities saw a vaccinator accompanied by a policeman, they had the impression that they had no choice but to submit. Dr. Zucker, help me to explain what may happen, for instance, if a child was to be diagnosed with the measles today. How would you handle that in a school here in New York City? What happens? Right. So if a child is diagnosed with measles, what uh, we would do is, one, make sure that that child uh, was not in a position to infect other people. So, for example, that child may be asked to stay home. We would then investigate contacts of, of that child, whether it be in the hospital they were t- or the doctor's office where they were taken. We would look at the whether it's daycare or school exposures. And if there were uh, a child, for example, who wasn't vaccinated, then that child would be 
you know, asked to stay home for the contagious period. But again, if people, if the other students are vaccinated, and I'm really very proud to say that with the work that we do with the Department of Education in our public schools, for example, over 98% of children are fully vaccinated. So people who were vaccinated would be considered immune. But what we would do is really work to sort of prevent the spread of measles into, you know, into the community and to other people. Dr. Zucker, are there any particular diseases that you're most concerned about that you're keeping a watch on on a regular basis here in the city with people in such close quarters? Right. Well, I think I have mentioned measles, and I think that that's been a particular problem. There have been uh, several importations. We've had several outbreaks that we've needed to investigate and, and contain. We've also had an increase in pertussis in uh, the end of last year. And uh, we did work to uh, sort of bring those cases down and to uh, make sure that uh, we were able to limit the spread of disease in um, in schools, for example. So I think those have been our two sort of biggest hot hot issues with, with vaccination recently. I guess part of the challenge here in New York City is the fact that we are all so close together, the densely populated city of New York. New York City has always been a leader in public health because it had to be uh, from the earliest history. It was the most uh, densely populated, the most crowded, the most diverse uh, city in the country. It's a global crossroads. Um, It's always been a center of, of commerce that brings together people from all over the world. And I guess that's why it makes for great drama on the big screen. And let's hope it stays on the big screen. I'm looking at the Movie poster for that movie, The Killer That Stalked New York, One Woman Brings Terror to Eight Million People. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope that stays on the big screen and not in real life in New York City. Dr. Zucker, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Dr. Jean Ashton, thank you. Thank you. Dr. David Rosner, thank you. My pleasure. And Dr. James Colgrove, thank you. Thank you. The exhibit, Be Sure, Be Safe, Get Vaccinated, Smallpox, Vaccination, and Civil Liberties in New York, opens Tuesday at the New York Historical Society and runs through September 2nd. My thanks to curator Dr. Jean Ashton and her exhibition team, Dr. David Rosner of the Center for the History and Ethics of Public Health at Columbia University, and Dr. James Colgrove, an associate professor of public health at Columbia. I also want to thank Dr. Jane Zucker, New York City's Assistant Commissioner of the Bureau of Immunization. For past editions of Cityscape, visit our website, wfuv.org slash cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. Julie Clark is our producer. Have a great weekend. 